Hello, I'm Claire Bennett, host of the brand new Original Thinkers podcast, where we take a wider, deeper dive into what it takes to have an original thought, the impact of it, and how it endures over time. At a time when original thinking couldn't be more important, I'll be talking to some of our country's leading minds about their creative process and about how creativity can improve lives and make a meaningful difference. So I'm thrilled that you've decided to join me for this, the very first episode of the Original Thinkers podcast. On today's episode, I'll catch up with John Wardle during Melbourne Design Week. John is a partner at John Wardle Architects, a practice that is internationally renowned for making extraordinary buildings and places that matter. So let's get into it. John, in a previous interview, I read that you said there's alchemy in bringing different ideas, skills and ways of thinking together and that you like to work with craftspeople and to encourage them to think unconventionally for amazing results. We think you are the epitome of an original thinker. So I certainly couldn't think of a more fitting person to interview for the very first Original Thinkers podcast. So welcome and thank you for finding the time to talk to us amongst the very busy schedule that is Melbourne Design Week, where you are presenting Relatively Useful at the Heidi Museum. Well, thank you, Claire. It's it's a pleasure to join you. Uh, Look, I I might actually start by saying, it's interesting, listen to your, your introduction. We had an opening of our exhibition on Tuesday night and I said, there's so much in my working life where I have to simultaneously apologise and thank people because very often when I do get involved with others, complexity and, and just sort of that sort of roller coaster of opportunity come together, particularly in this aspect of collaborating with others, that by the end of it, I've pushed them far harder than they ever had first imagined. So there's this simultaneous process of, of deep apology and great thanks. And, and that seems to be a recurring theme to the way I work. Um, yes, we're very fortunate. Uh, Leslie Harding, the remarkable director at Heidi, through discussions about a year and a half ago, brought together this possibility of us taking over the whole of that wonderful, beautiful house that is Heidi Two, the McLeish and Everest house designed in 1963 that's been a, an exemplar for, for me personally, for our practice and so many other architects. It is the perfect place and it's one of the great galleries in Australia in its sense of profound sense of architecture, but also landscape setting that makes it a place like no other. So to have it as the uh, container for these items of furniture and ceramics and other odd and unusual objects that we've designed in that setting has been wonderful. It sort of couldn't have happened as well in a, in a gallery. So it's a, it's a show that's been put together by Simon Lloyd at a long-time friend and collaborator of over 25 years, somebody who's completely, almost exactly my opposite in so many ways. Certainly his methods are completely different, but we have an amazing attraction to each other and the way we work. And we came together on a series of pieces, particularly the ceramics, all of the ceramics that are on show there. And then Simon and I often through conversation and developed our own things, especially for that show. So from dining tables to coffee tables, to jewelry boxes, to light fittings, jugs, pepper and salt shakers, particularly as we started to utilise every part of the timber, which is an interesting concept of the show also, from large to small objects as we really drove that efficiency of use became a further fascination as it developed. So tell me then, relatively useful, the name of the exhibition, 
Does that tie very strongly to the thought process behind what you have designed? It does. It's, it's meant to be humorous. There's a last minute thing, but it's sort of telling people that what they're seeing here, it's sort of not a Bauhaus show. It's not function leading the way with our thinking. It's, and, and so it's, it's, it's meant to be slightly tongue in cheek. The things have a use. It's in a relative use, but it's been compounded by the th- almost the theatricality of the life these objects will have. So a, a coffee table is nearer just a mute surface. It contains a vase or a bowl or it moves or slides or recalibrates to the shape of a social setting, does all these sort of things and sometimes quite playfully. So they have a use, but the use is relative. So I want to then sort of start to talk a little bit more, John, about original thinking. Why do you think original thinking is important in design, in the built environment, but just generally? Oh, I think we come from a society that can provide itself culturally with so many examples of significant moves that have changed the way that people live or conduct themselves in Australia through individual brilliant moments. Sometimes they've been political. They've could have been setting up our own superannuation system has been a remarkable thing that's actually fueled our economy for so long. That's then gone into ways of participating with many aspects of making an investment. The idea that life is becoming more complex as it is, the needs of societies far more acutely uh, surrounded by a series of imperatives and, and, and timescales like we've never had to deal with before. So original thinking is in some ways more difficult. I think there are greater pressures on, on thinkers but never more important than now. We have to think very carefully how we procure services, how we make things, how we combine with others, how reliant we are on suppliers from the other side of the world. All of these sort of complexities come together that can only be resolved by really pioneering thinking. I'd have to say, I don't think that is necessarily the individual perfect thought process. I think some of the great thinking comes together when people combine and react to each other and encourage through conversation or shared platforms of engagement, the kind of thinking that we now need to have to occur. So I think there's often a shift. That takes me beautifully to the next question, which was, do you think creativity can improve lives and, and influence change in the world? And I take it from, from your last answer that very much so you think it's critical that we're doing that. Can you tell us a little bit more about that and perhaps give some examples of where you've seen it happen in practice? I, mean, I think it always has and history can remind us of that. I've just finished reading the book of Brunelleschi's Dome, Idomo in Florence and the remarkable and difficult journey that single bright mind had in in creating that incredible structure that's now in its heading toward its 600th year of existence. Those sorts of things, we often have to refer to history to remind us of the importance of what we're doing, the sort of the continuum that we're a part of. I think that's, I think that's really important in contemporary thinking that, and I often talk to my staff about the history of thinking and the, the, sort of the cultural imperatives that drive the way we think or the way we apply ourselves to thinking. So there is an interesting balance between being really acutely aware of history and the great values of observing and, and a, a greater knowledge of history and how that can really inform us into the importance of, of, of this kind of thinking. At the same time, it shouldn't burden us. We shouldn't become conservative or bound up in 
the ways or the methodologies of, of past process, because really to be truly creative, you are pushing against the norm and often pushing against those pressures that, um, particularly profound at the moment when we, we look at particularly some of the environmental initiatives that we must now urgently, radically change. We're pushing against certain political and commercial pressures that make what we must all consider now all the more difficult. So it's a very interesting relationship we have with history. We must know it, we must be informed by it, but we shouldn't be burdened by the processes of well-worn practice that so often can make us conservative. So what then does it take, do you think, to have an original thought or pursue an original idea? Does it require some bravery? Does it require some discipline? Do you need time? What do you think it takes? Many things. I mean, a, a particular mindset that generally people are born with but can be developed and certainly can be encouraged. I think at the forefront is probably two things, curiosity and optimism. We must be curious minds. I can't think of an example where somebody that has not got the empathy to be curious, it's a big part of being curious is to actually project yourself into the realm of others to find out more, to genuinely seek out a, a deeper understanding of other cultures, their values, all the sorts of things that are beyond your own ego. So curiosity, I think, sits as almost the first stage of that inquiry, but we must be optimistic. And there's plenty of reasons not to be, but we must, I often talk about finding the reasons to be optimistic, seek out those gleaming moments that can cause us to be optimistic about things. It is at times difficult and it's a particular mindset, but to move forward, you've got to be optimistic that there is a future we want to harness and prove upon. I often think, and sometimes I do caution clients and I talk to our staff about this, an, an idea in its infancy is a very fragile thing and it can be killed off with logic almost immediately. And so that freedom to allow something develop from that, that's kind of raw thinking that often can't be justified with logic certainly can be beaten with detail that must be allowed to be progressed and, and given oxygen. So we try and think in our frameworks of discussion within the practice of how we can allow ideas to occur and have the first moment of response to be one of optimism and projection to take that idea into its next stage of development. It may be killed off through logic later on, but never at its infancy. And architecture can be competitive. We often have to present to others. We'll often have others around the table in certainly in the building industry that might want to kill it off with a bit of well-worn logic right at the, at the first presentation. And we try and protect it from that because it's, it's, a, it's in a very vulnerable state. I love that. I did a workshop once where they talked about um, process of generating and, and doing just that, fostering ideas. And the example they gave was NASA's process of putting astronauts on the moon. And they said, we didn't start at the beginning because every single step was impossible. We started with, we put a foot on the moon. And then we said, what had to happen before that for it to happen? So I love that. I also read on your website that despite the fact that you're a hundred strong team at John Wardle Architects, that you're almost boutique in the way you sort of foster creativity within the workplace, putting paper up on boards and really doing things in a really tactile way. Is there a particular process that you nurture within the practice? 
Yeah, I think there's a scaling thing here. We were certainly a great little practice. And because of opportunity to do larger and larger things, we grew. And we'll always refer back to what are those amazing aspects that we enjoyed so much as a smaller practice and how do we make sure we don't lose them? And so we'll always, in thinking of the cultural pursuits, the other things, the design methodologies, the way we actually carry out our routines throughout a working day that are less conventional. And we'll always have this filter about, oh, are we becoming too conventional? Let's not do that. That's too corporate or something. It's, it's in our DNA to always push against those things, even though we are, have the scaling of a larger practice. And so we try and find ways of descaling. So that intimacy of association that we like to have with our clients, for example, pervades the whole of our methodology, particularly in the design phases of a project. So we become sort of subsets of smaller practice uh, within a, a larger framework of engagement. That almost answers my next question, which was sort of how do you nurture creativity? Is it, is it something that you need to practice like a musician practices an instrument? Can it become stale or do you lose your edge if you're not really focused on making sure that you're continuing to maintain your skills as, a, as an original thinker? Well, yes, you're right. That is a great danger of practice of any scale. The, the pressures that surround us are often the sort of the legal and financial and all of the regulations we have to accord with as architects are becoming a greater load than, than we've probably ever had before. So we do have to find ways internally to regulate those. And it probably comes back to many of those things I've already discussed about encouraging others, the good conversation. Um, I often describe some of our drawings and some of the ones that I personally do as they're really evidence of a conversation. They're scrappy, rough and ready, overdrawing. Sometimes you can see the evidence of many hands or a hand drawing over a computer drawing. Those sorts of moments of engagement that we record and kind of revere and regard very highly as those critical moments in the development of, say, the plan of a house or a detail in a much larger building. So also celebrating those moments when we know an idea has reached a particular point that should be valued and appreciated. I read a, a beautiful little book recently by John Cleese called Creativity. And one of the key things that he said was, was time. And as you mentioned there, the commercial pressures of running a business sometimes really limit time and there's always deadlines to play with. And he said, you know, as creative thinkers, we would never deliver something the day before it was due because you just never know what's going to come to light, you know, in the 24 hours before. And more thinking is always better than less thinking, which I found fascinating. So it's interesting to hear you talk about, yeah, really fostering that in a commercial environment and keeping that creativity alive. Yeah, well, one thing, th th these ideas are very precious and we like to be there alongside them. One of the, it's, a, it's only a small detail, but one of the precious architects always have is often on the client side, they'll ask us, can you send through the submission for the meeting tomorrow, 24 hours or 48 hours before the meeting? Well, we hate doing that because we want to be there. It's, it's full of ideas that we want to advocate for and tell the stories. We, we think the stories behind ideas are part of the joy of making. And, and should have carriage of the ideas themselves. So to actually email out an entire presentation out 24 hours beforehand to us goes against our understanding of that intimate engagement of discussion and advocacy of an idea. 
So, yeah, I, I agree. We very often, we're still racing to the line. It's often those additive things toward the end of a, the journey that you want to add right at the last moment. So again, it's, it confounds that wish of others to post out the ideas early. Yeah. Being an, an original thinker and certainly being an architect, you do have a lot of influence. You know, you are an instrument of change in the world by being able to really sculpt the built environment. Do you as an individual have sort of an end game? Is there something that you are really hoping to drive with your original thinking or that drives you? Or is it really more for you about the journey? Look, it's a very interesting question, Claire. I often describe us sort of as creative opportunists. Opportunist is a word that's often seen as a negative thing, but we've moved or merged or shifted to a project in another state or a different building type by just grabbing an opportunity. So we have never followed a straight line as far as particularly any model for growth or commercial aspect to our practice. We've been relatively fleet of foot and we've moved toward the opportunities of winning a competition or seeking out a project that seemed a really amazing thing to do. So it's very much about the journey. But I think in doing that, it's important to mark the journey. And if this is a weakness in us, we're that the pressures of us is always roll on to the next thing. And, and we often find we have to have the discipline internally to stop and mark those moments along the way, but certainly never an end game. I've, it's a word I don't think I could find any example of me ever, ever doing. And, you know, I don't, I don't imagine an end in sight. Uh, it's, it's something that I can't fathom. It's just the continuing on. I think generally buoyed by enthusiasm and that sort of optimism for the next project. One thing I would say, which probably goes against the idea of any, any game is a very singular thing to me. Um, the thing I'm possibly most pleased about with our practice is the breadth of it. We'll be doing a beach house for somebody while we're still doing, completing our conservatorium in Melbourne or doing a high rise building, a major hospital. Just the breadth of work is, is fantastic. So rather than in game, I think we're always looking at that new territory. And rather than repeating methodologies and types, we're always seeking something else. We're doing in Hobart, a new whiskey distillery for Sullivan's Cove, having never done one before. We're halfway through our fleet of buildings for the University of Tasmania that I'd love to tell you about that are at the urging of Rufus Black, a remarkable vice chancellor, really have at their forefront the, the new technologies that utilize Tasmanian timber. And those buildings, each one is an exemplar of some aspect of this. And it's been really fascinating to roll out some investigative work on the first one at Cradle Coast that the industry wasn't quite there yet, that we're now catching up with the subsequent buildings that are now being built at Inveresk. So we can actually chart the course of our work across a series of industries that cover the entire area of the state, but with a particular focus to the north of the state and seeing how we can conduct ourselves as researchers as much as architects into new means of procurement, new technologies, powerful environmental values that overlay absolutely everything and that then do link from one project to the next. Opportunities sought in one building are now then manifest and better developed in the next. And that sequencing of that project for us, particularly a project of four buildings and a bridge that took us right through COVID, has been a really compelling essay in so many aspects, really, of new thinking for us as a practice and the many people that we've joined with. So, John, you're a regular 
user of or specifier of Tasmanian timbers in your project. Are there any particular species or Tasmanian timber products that really stand out to you as a preference for your projects? Yes, well, look, we're, we're certainly immersed in both scales at the moment, certainly structural timbers and, and new, new means of mass timber construction. And that's at the forefront of projects, both at the University of Tasmania and our new project at Sullivan's Cove, which is our latest area of exploration. And then the other side of it, and certainly with our exhibition at Heidi, uh, the use of hydrowood, which is an amazing knowledge bank of, of sourcing remarkable and rare timbers by the most incredible means. So to see those videos of, of the rig and, the, and uh, the reclaiming of something that was such a bad story from 40 years ago to find that, in fact, those lakes have preserved this incredible timber that we can now utilise that is such a, a rare thing, particularly species such as leatherwood that could never be and should never be milled in Tasmania for all sorts of reasons, the rarity of it, the, the, the remarkable honey that comes from it. But so to be able to pull 40-year or trees that have been submerged for 40 years, very old trees, uh, out of the lakes and make fine furniture out of them is, is great. I mean, I have a particular love of celery top pine. It's been a favourite timber of mine for many years and I've been using it for 20-odd years. And to see some of the, the pieces in, in celery top also, it, but just generally the, the, the process of procuring that timber by that means is a very remarkable event and something that hopefully the exhibition really uh, draws upon. And certainly a brilliant example of the original thinking that I mentioned in the beginning that is a Tasmanian trait. I mean, the, the thought that went into something that, you know, said couldn't be done, and here it is, one of the world's first underwater logging operations, and the other structural timber that you mentioned with cusp building solutions, the world's first hardwood and strongest hardwood cross-laminated timber. So they're two wonderful examples that you've raised there of the original thinking that's happening in the built environment in Tasmania, and it's brilliant to see them coming to fruition in some of the country's leading projects. Yeah, there's a particular canniness that is evident in Tasmania as much as any other places I know, and that's coming out into both those two scales of endeavour. There's good reasons to find optimism. Absolutely. Well, look, thank you so much for your time, John. It's been incredibly insightful. I've certainly enjoyed it. I know given that you're in the thick of this wonderful exhibition at Melbourne Design Week, relatively useful that you're busy. So we will let you get back to that. And thank you so much for your time, John. We really, really appreciate it. Great, Claire. It's been a pleasure. That was John Wardle and what a fascinating conversation. Many thanks once again to John for taking the time to speak with us and make sure you check out the show notes at originalthinkers.com.au where you'll find further information and links to everything we've talked about in today's show, including a video about John's relatively useful exhibition at Melbourne Design Week. Thanks also to the sponsors of this episode, Original Tasmanian Timber. Make sure to visit tasmaniantimber.com.au, the ultimate resource for architects, designers and anyone interested in local, sustainable and beautiful timbers. And also, thank you to Hydrowood. Hydrowood is a brilliant example of original thinking. They said it couldn't be done, but Hydrowood is a resource being reclaimed from the deep. Visit hydrowood.com.au. And finally, thank you for joining me. Next time, I speak with Brodie Neal.
Well, the way it works for me is that the idea is more a kind of what if moment, you know, a moment of spontaneity. It would be almost like you're walking down the street and you think, oh, you know, what, what happens if you put ocean plastic together and, and, and made this new material? When these ideas strike, um, you're going to be miles away from a pen and paper, miles away from your computer. So you just got to kind of hold that thought, play it over and over and over in your mind, really refine it, you know, almost like kind of how a, a wave might shape a rock kind of thing. <laughs>